Hopefully you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, open to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the 13th chapter once again. It is titled the love chapter in my Bible, and I know it is the same in many of yours. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We started a series of sermons last week that I'm referring to as the absolutes of love. We are taking just one and a half verses and building this sermon series around it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Speaking of love, the Apostle Paul writes, It always protects. That's what we looked at last week. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now those are, once again, what I would refer to as the absolutes of love. There's all kinds of other teaching in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love is and what love does. These are the absolutes that become the foundation of love relationships. When we're able to look at each one of them individually, we can see the strength that they bring to the whole of the love relationship, and it helps us understand exactly what we're shooting for. We're going to spend a few weeks dealing with each one of these so that we can completely understand it, or at least to the best of our ability, completely understand it. So let's take this one today. Love always trusts. For a lot of people, that is a difficult thing to grasp because of personal history or backgrounds. It can be very difficult to get your head wrapped around what it means to really trust. For some people, there's enough brokenness in their past that trust has become an impossibility in the present. That has never been an issue for me. And here's why. I grew up in a home where I knew I was loved and cared for. My parents loved each other, they loved God, and they loved me and my brother. We could trust that we were in a relationship where we were protected. We could trust that we were in a relationship where we were loved. So growing up, I didn't have anything that eroded that foundation. I was thinking about this just a a couple weeks ago. I have now been married longer than I have not been married. Tina and I have been married for 26 years. I'm 47 years old. So I have a longer history married than I do single. And as a result of that, I can look back over the course of 26 years of marriage and say that because we invested in the idea of trust from the moment that we first got married, I have never had to question that within the marital relationship. I have lived in the safety and the protection of that for 26 years, and so has she. That's a wonderful place to be. I have friendships that fit in that same category. These are men that I would take a bullet for, and they would for me. I know it, and so do they. There is a lot of trust in those relationships. I've learned a lot from those friendships. I've learned a lot from marriage. I've learned a lot from how I grew up. But I have also learned a lot about this idea of trust within a love relationship from the Word of God, from the examples that are recorded here, and the truth that is taught in the Bible. You can do the same thing. You can learn a lot about how to apply these things, how to develop them, how to build them simply by spending time in the Word of God or following the 33 years of Jesus' life and paying attention to the examples that exist there for us to be able to follow. It's pretty groundbreaking. But I've also learned a lot about trust from some extra-biblical writings, from some authors that have penned some of their own struggles as well as their victories. I want to share one of those with you today. It comes from a lady named Leslie Payne. 
She's written a number of different things, articles, books, blogs, and so on. She's a very, very in-depth writer. She's a very transparent writer. In one of the short stories that she has written, really not a short story, it's more of a biography, a short biography that she has written, she talks about the idea of trust in some powerful ways. I wanted to share it with you this morning. It didn't sound right coming from a man's voice, so I asked Beth if she would record this for us. That's whose voice you're about to hear. Listen to this and listen critically to what she says about the idea of trust. Is your nose crooked? I asked. As Richard pondered how to answer my question, I wondered what possessed me to ask something so stupid. This wonderful man was gently pursuing me. If our relationship continued to grow as it had been, my life as a single woman would soon be over. But then I opened my mouth, letting the words tumble out before considering how careless they sounded. No, he hesitated. My nose is perfect. It's the rest of my face that's lopsided. Richard's warm laughter reassured me he could handle my candor. If you'd asked one of my neighbors about Richard, he would have been identified as the man in button-down shirts and dress pants who arrived at my house in a Toyota Camry. However, I began to believe he was my knight in shining armor. All he lacked was a horse. Relaxed by his laughter, I took a deep breath, determined to tell him something I feared really would be a deal-breaker. You need to know, Rich, I take antidepressants. He blinked and waited for more. They're one of the medications for my pain management. With antidepressants, I can handle it when the pain increases. They give the extra emotional energy I need. Without them, I get weepy and kind of fall apart. Feeling slightly ashamed, I bit my bottom lip while I looked down at the floor. Seventy percent of people living with chronic pain are on antidepressants as part of their treatment. Yet at this moment, facts didn't matter. Only Richard's response seemed important. He took my hands in his. Whatever you need to take is okay with me as long as it's under a doctor's supervision. Remember, he looked me in the eye, I believe love can help heal in ways medical science cannot. Sweet relief flooded my soul as a smile spread across my face. Several years before this conversation, an auto accident had turned my world upside down. Every part of my life was invaded by physical pain. Even as Richard and I talked, my whole body ached, yet I began to believe in his theory. Life felt better with him by my side. As a single, independent woman in my forties, at times I found it difficult to open up and trust Richard's love. To explain the realities of chronic pain felt even harder. Fifteen years my senior, Richard was wise enough to understand and gentle enough to help me with the process. Before we met, he had been happily married until his wife died of cancer. Through their experience, he knew the relationship a couple shared was more important than physical abilities or limitations. Even though I couldn't pull ropes on a sailboat or join him in a game of racquetball, he was convinced our relationship was worth keeping. A few months later, I joyfully agreed, and we were married. Marrying Richard was an easy decision. It was not as easy to trust him with my pain. Each time the pain increased, I debated when to tell him. Again and again, I reminded myself to trust his love through another rough spell. But I still struggled to accept my limitations. So how could I expect him to accept them? I often ended up in tears of frustration, worn out physically and emotionally. No longer the strong, active woman I used to be, Insecurities mocked me as I adjusted to my new role as wife. Deep down, I wondered if a woman whose body always hurt could really be worthy of a love like Richard's. The insight that she brings to this whole idea of trust, starting with things like this. 
Love has the ability to do things that medical science doesn't. That is very true. There's great insight just in that teaching, but there's even more in what she had to say. Did you catch it? When she said marrying Richard was easy, but trusting him with her medical issues, with her pain, was very difficult. There are a lot of people that are in love relationships that deal with that exact concept. I can love you. I can feel protected by you, but there are certain things that I cannot trust to you. It's not always something like physical pain or medical issues. Sometimes people are holding back in all kinds of other ways, not really moving all the way into the relationship. They're guarding certain aspects of who they are, and that robs them of the total blessing of the relationship. Trust can be hard. It can be hard for a myriad of reasons. But the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love always trusts. And if we're in a love relationship, we have to figure it out. So let's get into the Bible and see if we can do that very thing. We'll see if we can figure it out. We're going to start with just the base idea, love always trust. The New Testament sets that table for us beautifully. Why don't you go to Matthew chapter 1 with me? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now this is a passage that even if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe this is your first time here, I know you're still familiar with the details of this story. They've not been hidden from anybody. In fact, they have been shared over and over and over again in familiar ways. So I know you've heard a lot of this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now you can easily see where trust would become an issue between Joseph and Mary. They were engaged. They'd already established a love relationship. They decided they were going to get married, spend their lives together. And then before the wedding ceremony, before they actually started life with one another, Mary comes to Joseph and says, I'm pregnant. Joseph knows beyond the shadow of any doubt that it is not by him. So he did what anyone would do. He decided in his heart that we're going to have to go separate ways. This isn't going to work. We're not going to get married. And then God showed up. Pretty cool way God showed up. In a dream with an angel. Explained everything to him. Those are the details of the story that you are fully aware of. After he woke up, the Bible lays it out for us very plainly. He trusted Mary. Now he was able to trust Mary because of the angel. Because of the dream. But I would offer to you that there were more things at play here. Joseph was able to trust Mary because of the supernatural, but also because of some history that he had with her. 
Now, this is just my speculation, so follow me through that way. But I would venture a guess that Joseph probably posed three questions to himself before he chose to take Mary home. Question number one, does Mary love the Lord? Question number two, is there anything within our relational history that would cause me to not trust her? And question number three, does she have mine and our best interest in mind? Now, if he could answer the first one, yes, which obviously he could, she loved the Lord, that's going to put him a long ways down the trail because he is able with that answer to say that we have the same moral values. We are headed the same direction. We are pulling together, going the same way. We are both pursuing a relationship with God that makes trust much easier. That second one is very personal. Is there anything within our relational history that would cause me to not trust her? Well, Joseph could look back over however long they had been together. Bible doesn't tell us. He could look back over all that time and say, no, she's never done anything that would cause me to question her motives, to question her word. So that's an easy thing for me to hold on to. And question number three, does she have my best interest and our best interest in mind? If the answer is yes, then it'd be easy for Joseph to get up and say, all right, we're going into kind of some uncharted territory here, and this is going to be strange, but let's go ahead and get married. And he did. The same three questions apply in our relationships. If you are in a love relationship with somebody, husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents, friend to friend, family to family, whatever it is, those same three questions work in regard to building trust within the relationship. Does the other person love the Lord? If that's the case, we're already sharing the most important things, the value of a relationship, personal relationship with God. Is there anything within our relational history that would cause me to doubt this other person? If the answer is no, trust is easy. If the answer is yes, it can be a little more difficult. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. Then number three, does the other person have my best interest in mind? Whether that is in conflict resolution, confrontation, or the realm of dreams, if you know and can trust that the other person has your best interest in mind and they're trying to take you into a new place in the relationship because they have a personal dream that they're wanting to see fulfilled but it's hard for you to embrace, if you can answer those first two questions the right way, then it's easier to say, okay, even though I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to go with you. Even though this has taken me someplace that that I'm not particularly easy with, I'm going to go with you. Now, obviously, there's conversation that flies back and forth in those types of relationships where you value what each other has to say. But at the end of the day, in biblical submission, ladies, listen to this. If you know that your husband loves the Lord and he has your best interest in mind and he's never compromised that, then in biblical submission, trust his leadership. Fellas, in biblical submission, do the same thing where you know that she loves the Lord, she has your best interest in mind, and she's never compromised trust within the relationship. If she's putting something before you that makes you personally uncomfortable, trust the relationship. Move into it with her. Parents, by the way, this works even with your children. It's hard. Because as you watch them grow up going through different stages of life, trust is going to become an issue. 
When they're small living in your house, it is easy to control every one of their actions, to control their geography, to control where they're at at any given time. But as they get older, it becomes more difficult to release the responsibilities that they crave, to release the trust to them that they crave. But you have to. That's part of growing up. You have to be able to release those things. So those three questions make it easier to do that. Does my child love the Lord? Is there anything within our relational history that would cause me to not trust them? And do they have the same values? Not necessarily my best interest in mind, but theirs. Do they have the right values in mind? If that's the case, as hard as it is, I'm going to step back and let my kids make some decisions that are difficult to let them make. You want to know how hard that is? Tina and I are living it right now. Three years ago, almost four years ago, our oldest son went off to college. Holy smokes, I died a little bit that day. He went off to college and we have had a a whole new idea of what a trust relationship is like as he's been making his own decisions. Some of them we totally agree with, some of them we don't. They've all been good moral decisions and so those ones that we don't agree with, there's all kinds of freedom for him to be able to do what he is wanting to do. We just have to step back and say, we trust you. Our two other kids, youngest ones, we will send out of the home this year at the exact same time in August of this year. I hate this stage of life. (laughs) Hate this stage of life. We are going to release them into all kinds of decisions and freedoms that we're no longer going to be able to have as much impact or even as much say on because they're outside of our home. But here's what we know about our kids. They love the Lord. They've never done anything to compromise trust with us. And we know that they have shared values. We know that they have our best interest, but more important than that, we know that they have God's best interest in mind. So it's easier to let them go, even though I'm dying a little bit. Now, here's just a moment of transparency. It's even easier to let my sons go, but my daughter's leaving. (laughs) And that doesn't mean that I love my sons less than my daughter, but holy buckets, I am just not equipped. Maybe that'll come. God's grace is good. Maybe that will come. When we look at this idea that love always trusts and we are able to apply it, it sets us up for something absolutely amazing, which is the adventure of life. When love trusts, an adventure begins that cannot be replicated in any other way. That adventure can easily be described as intimacy. When love trusts, the adventure of intimacy begins. I was sitting at my computer last week trying to think of different ways to describe intimacy. I came up with at least 10 words, but just the list of words in and of themselves wasn't enough. I wanted kind of a visual to go with it because intimacy is this crazy ride that relationships provide. So I had Beth do a little bit of graphic work for us. This is what we came up with. Intimacy is daring. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's risky. It's terrifying. It's amazing. It's crazy. It's fun. It's vulnerable. And it's safe. Intimacy is all of that put together on a high-speed road that we would call life. And intimacy allows us to experience it and adventure our way through it with other people. When we establish that type of a trust relationship, it is a crazy, wild ride. 
It really is. And when love trusts, we position ourselves for that. Steve Chapman has said that intimacy is a deep and total inner sharing of yourself with another person. Your hopes, your dreams, your joys, your hurts, all of that is shared with another person within the confines of intimacy. A guy named Robert Hellerman would take that further and say that if we want to experience that type of relationship, it is going to cost us openness and vulnerability, emotional exposure. Isn't that a term? Emotional exposure and trust. If we want to experience that type of relationship, all of that is a part of the cost. The cost is so worth it. Now remember, this happens within the confines of marriage, but it happens in other relationships as well. We have done ourselves a disservice in believing that intimacy only exists within the confines of marriage. There are certain intimacies that that is without a doubt true of, but there is the possibility of intimacy within other relationships, love relationships, where trust is the foundation of it. Let me show you one of those from the Bible. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew. Just turn over to chapter 17 with me. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Here's what we know. All 12 of the disciples were in place by the time we get to Matthew chapter 17. But three of them had a special place in the Lord's heart. They were his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. This is not the only time in the Bible that we would see these four having special moments, intimate moments, if you will. Now, does that mean that Jesus didn't love the other nine? Not at all. It just means that these three were exceedingly close to him. There was a love relationship defined a little different than the love relationship that he had for the others. Very possibly, it's defined by intimacy. There was an intimacy here that Jesus did not share with other people. Otherwise, they would have been there. But only these three were. And they got to see something in Jesus' life that nobody else did. They got to hear the heavens open and the voice of God speak about his Son, They got to experience things that nobody else could even fathom. How cool is that, that Jesus would invite them into that part of his life? He knew what was going to happen on that mountain, and he asked them to come with him. That's a trust relationship. Did you hear what he said when it was over, when they were coming down the mountain? Hey, this is just between us. Don't tell anybody else about this. Don't let anybody else know what you've seen, at least not until after I'm gone. When I've ascended into heaven, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, I've gone into heaven, then you can tell anybody you want. But for now, let's keep this just between ourselves. The Gospel of Mark says they did that exact thing. They didn't tell anybody about this until after Jesus ascended into heaven. 
They kept his secrets. That's part of the trust relationship. And when intimacy comes into play, it is necessary for us to understand that. We looked at it a little bit last week when we were talking about the protective nature of love. It's this idea that if somebody else has opened up their heart to you, you do whatever it takes to protect that heart. Now that works in relationships like this. It also works in marital relationships or family relationships. If somebody trusts you enough to intimately open their heart to you and share the deep things that are there, you keep them just between yourselves. You want to destroy trust, you start talking about it with other people. You want to destroy trust, you go tell your husband or your wife's secrets to other people. You go share their heart without their permission and watch what happens. It erodes the relationship all the time. It erodes the relationship. Now, you've heard me say a number of different times that there are five levels of intimacy in any marriage. There's the emotional, the intellectual, the spiritual, the physical, and the financial. The spiritual sits in the middle of it. It covers everything on either side of it. And those levels of intimacy, husbands and wives share at whatever level they're comfortable with. Hopefully, there is a deep sharing, according to Steve Chapman and Robert Hillerman and Scripture. Hopefully, the adventure is such that it is snowballing all the time and you continue to share all kinds of things from your heart with each other. And those five levels of intimacy help us do that. When that happens, listen to me, you keep one another's secrets. You keep one another's secrets. You protect the heart of the other person. In premarital counseling, one of the things that I always teach is this. That in conflict resolution, it is necessary for young couples, particularly just as they're getting started, to understand that when you get upset with the other person, you need to learn how to resolve the conflict within the relationship without bringing other people in. And I'll say things like this. Ladies, don't go tell your parents what your husband has done wrong. Fellas, don't go home and tell your parents what your wife has done wrong and all of the silly things that he or she has done and the ways that they have hurt you because this is what will happen. Parents, because they are preconditioned to do it, will get very upset at your spouse because they have hurt their child. They're going to get all wound up about it. And then all of a sudden, you may say to yourself, well wasn't that big of a deal, and really most of it was my fault. I'm just going to go back home and everything will be fine. So you walk through the front door, throw your arms around your husband or wife, give them a little kiss on the cheek, and everything is great for you, but your parents are still at their house stewing in their own juices, trying to figure out how to choke the life out of the other person because they hurt their son or daughter. Don't bring them in until, and, and listen to me on this, until you have to. Because there are moments of abuse and there are moments of abandonment and moments of neglect that you need to be able to go back and share with somebody that is close to you and has your best interest in mind and you have a trust relationship with that you might get the right counsel, that you might have somebody that helps lead you through it. When those things happen, you open your heart back up, but you have to decide where that line is. And again, that happens in abuse and abandonment and neglect. And then in those moments, that's where parents are right in saying, hey, we've got to help figure something out here. We've got to get involved. And they do. Now, here's one of the other things that happens all the time, though. We bring other people into the relationship. 
ladies might sit around with a bunch of other ladies and, and they'll just bash their husbands. Or men will stand around the, the bed of a pickup with a bunch of other men and they'll bash their wives. At the moment you do that, you are compromising trust. You are helping it erode. You keep it to yourself. The things that they have shared and the ways that they have opened themselves up, you keep it to yourself. Because that's one of the keys in an intimate relationship that allows us to say we are safe and we are protected and you've never done anything to compromise my trust. Don't do that. That's one of the reasons. Here's just an example for you. One of the reasons that you don't hear me joke about Tina from the pulpit. I've heard preachers that have done that, where they have made fun of their wives from the pulpit and they they take all kinds of cheap shots. I promised Tina a long time ago that that would never happen. In 26 years, she has only told me one time that I got too close to the line and I felt terrible about it. But thankfully, thankfully, we have a trust relationship that allowed her to say, you know what, that could have gotten hurtful and I wish you hadn't done that. And I was able to say, I'm sorry and I, I won't. And I'll back off of that because I'm going to protect her heart the same way she's going to protect mine. Because, listen to this from Paul, love always trusts. And that's part of the adventure. It is so exciting. Folks, you be careful who you share things with. You be careful how you talk about your relationship with other people. You protect that. If you are in need of godly counsel, you seek out godly counsel. But listen to me, relationships do not get broken from just one side. They get broken from both sides, and they get fixed from both sides. If you come to me for marriage counseling, I will meet with you one time. That's it, one time. And then I will tell you that we will not meet again unless we're all sitting down together. Because otherwise, all I'm doing is setting the stage for you to come and tell me how bad your husband is or how bad your wife is. We'll only do that one time. And from there, we're going to have to be together to work it out because love always trusts. And they have to be able to trust that when they come in, they've not been the target of of conversation that is unfair. Love always trusts. So guard your mouth. And by doing that, you will guard the other person's heart and you'll protect them and you'll be able to take care of them. And that sets the stage for this unbelievable adventure that we call intimacy that then opens up the doors for us, be this in marriage or any other relationship, to be able to rely on other people in our weakest moments. When we need them the most, they'll be there for us. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark now. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the man, the paralyzed man, or lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is such a great story. Jesus is traveling through the area. He is healing people. People are having their lives changed by him. That's what Jesus has done from the very beginning, and he still does it today. This guy couldn't get there on his own, so he found four friends, obviously love relationship types of friends, and said, hey, can you get me to Jesus? 
can you get me to where he's at? And they stepped up to the plate, grabbed hold of the mat, and they carried him there. But when they got there, you saw it right for yourself. There were so many people, they couldn't get him to the feet of the Savior. So they did something unprecedented. They got him to the roof. Can you imagine how hard that would be if you were paralyzed, laying on a mat in the days before ratcheting tie-downs, and they were going to get you to the roof? How they found a ladder, I don't know. How they got him up there, I don't know. But in my mind, I picture him teetering a little bit. I can picture that mat going upside down and all the blood rushing to his head, or he feels like he's going to slide off the other end, but they're going to get him to the roof. And when they do, they don't stop there. They dig through the thatch, and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. And the coolest part of the story is this. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith, and the man was healed. He could have never gotten there on his own. It required these other men in his life to make this happen. At the weakest spot of his life, when he couldn't do it by himself, they did it. They got there. I hope you have people in your life like that because we all need them. There are times when we don't have what it takes to do it on our own. There are times when we are beat down or exhausted or weak from any number of different reasons in life. And you need people that will come alongside you and grab hold of the mat and get you to the roof. But you need to make sure they don't stop there. Make sure they dig on through the thatch and they lower you down into the presence of Christ. And look at what happens as a result of it. I have seen this very thing play out a number of times on Thursday nights at Celebrate Recovery. Somebody's at a weak spot in their life. They don't have anything left. Life has come crashing down on them. And somebody says, I know where you can find some help. I know where you can find the Savior. I know where you can find the great physician, and I will take you. One of the best things that I ever see at Celebrate Recovery is the person sitting next to the person that has come. One of the most beautiful things you ever see is the person that has made sure somebody else has gotten there, and they've stayed right beside them. All they did was get them to the roof and dig through the thatch and get them into the presence of the Savior. That's it. It's a beautiful picture of how this works in an intimate love relationship, but it requires trust. Anytime you have to say to somebody, I know what you need, I recognize that you're at the end of yourself, I know what you need, it requires trust for them to be able to hear you. But when that happens, you're safe, you're protected. Because you're able to say, do you love the Lord? Is there anything in our history that should make me doubt that? Do you have my best interest in mind? If all of those are answered the right way, then grab my mat and let's go. Get me to the roof. If that's what needs to happen, I trust you. And it happens in love because love always trusts. Now you might ask, and this is a fair question, what happens though when trust has been challenged? What happens when it's been broken? What happens when it's been strained? Can it come back together? The answer is an unequivocal, biblical yes. You can reestablish trust. It can be done. I'll show you why I believe that. Let's go to John chapter 21, last chapter of the New Testament. Peter is out on a boat fishing. It's early in the morning. There was probably a time in his life when Peter loved fishing early in the morning, but by this particular point in time, he doesn't. Peter's hiding. 
You know what he's hiding from? He's hiding from a rooster. He doesn't want to be in bed when the rooster crows. He doesn't want to be on land when the rooster crows. Some of that is my speculation, but I know the heart of Peter, and so it makes the speculation easy. It's easier, safer to be out on the water where he can't hear them. That rooster crowing reminds him that at one time he had told Jesus that he would be faithful to him all the way to death, but Jesus said to him, actually, Peter, that's not going to happen, and before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times, and sure enough, he denied Jesus three times, and the rooster put an exclamation point behind it. For the days after Jesus' crucifixion, after his arrest, mornings had to be hard for Peter. Not because of the nightmares, not because of sweating through the night, not, not because of the darkness, but because morning was coming. The rooster was going to crow. On this particular morning, they were out fishing. Jesus came to where they were at. He was on the shore. He yelled out to them where they needed to cast their nets that they might catch fish, and they did. They caught a record number of fish, and he had a fire going on the shore. They came back and joined him, had breakfast, and after they had breakfast, Peter and Jesus went for a walk on the beach. Listen to their conversation. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to me, or said to him, follow me. Ah, it's a great story. It is a great story. Three times, and that's not a mistake, three times, Jesus would say to him, Peter, do you love me? Now, we could go into all the Greek and we could explore the different uses of the word love, but it doesn't really matter. Here's what was happening. Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, I trust you. Are you with me? I trust you. In that conversation, here's what was happening. Peter was receiving from Jesus grace and mercy and forgiveness, and things were being reinstated. Now, obviously, Jesus is who he is, so we can also expect that not only did he have access to the supernatural, but he had access to the human side of everything that was going on. And there are a couple of significant things within the relationship that make this work. The first one's found back in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In that moment, Peter and Jesus established a covenant relationship. There was an agreement between the two of them. The relationship was started. We can go on through the Gospels and see all kinds of different expressions of that relationship. This one just happens to be my favorite. It's found in John chapter 18. It's my favorite because I have some of the same tendencies Peter does. Verse 1. 
When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, when you're studying stories like this in the Bible, it's always good to open up to the other Gospels and see what they have to say about the same story. It's called paralleling the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we find out that after Peter whacked off the ear, Jesus reached down, picked it up, and stuck it back on the man's head. Cool part of the story. In Mark's Gospel, we find another little interesting tidbit, and this one just makes me laugh. This is Mark chapter 14. You don't have to turn with me. I'll just show it to you. Mark chapter 14, verse 51. Mark's telling the exact same story. At the end of it, he says this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's just funny. That's all that is. So here's this guy. Some Bibles actually say that it's Mark or John Mark, so the author of the book. So he's following along. You can imagine why he didn't put his own name in there. Got so caught up in what was going on with Jesus, he left the house in his underwear. When Jesus was arrested, he turned and ran, and somebody grabbed the edge of his drawers, and they fell off, and he took off naked. That's just funny. Now, I've wondered for the longest time, why is that included in Scripture? Why is that in there? I've looked at commentaries. I've looked at all kinds of different stuff, resources, try to figure it out. Nobody knows. I think some of it's there just so we can laugh, just so we can smile. But here's what we know. Peter was willing to defend Jesus. He was willing to stand with him. Nobody was going to arrest him. Nobody was going to take him away. Nobody was going to put him on the cross, not on Peter's watch. That was their relationship. So in John 21, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter could easily say, Lord, you know I love you. Three times, Lord, you know I love you. That's the history of our relationship. You can trust me. And Jesus did. Feed my sheep, he said. If you're in a relationship where things have been strained or stretched and trust has eroded, then you can apply the same ideas just by accepting that things can be different. And in order to accept that, here's what you have to know as we wrap all this up. Jesus Christ is not only the creator, he is the re-creator. Jesus can take anything that is dead and give it life, even relationships. He has that ability. There is a pattern in the Bible that shows us how to make that happen. It's found in the book of 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's that simple with God. 
And we have to understand that we have to have a relationship established with God if we're going to carry that idea into earthly relationships. So we confess our sin before God. We repent of our sin, which, listen to me, there's a difference between confession and repentance. Confession is saying, yeah, I know I did it wrong. Happens all the time in earthly relationships. That's just who I am. Yep, I know I did it wrong. Repentance says I don't want to do it wrong anymore. I want to go the other way. In those moments, God is faithful and just. He forgives us of all of our sin, purifies us from all unrighteousness. We can do the same thing when somebody comes to you with a heart of repentance and they're able to say, I know I've messed it up. I want to do it differently. There's a chance for recreation. Give the chance and see what God will do. It establishes trust. Without it, you will never experience the adventure of an intimate relationship. With trust, what a ride. It'll be amazing. It truly will. It starts with our walk with God and it carries on into our walk with everyone else that is significant in our lives, the love relationships that we have. If you would like to pray with somebody about some strained relationships in your life, we want you to know that you can do that this morning. All you have to do as we offer the invitation is go over to this door and tell Deanie you need to pray with somebody because you have some broken relationships, some strained relationships. Maybe you don't want to pray with anybody else. You just want to talk to God, but you feel like you need to take a bold step so that God can hear you. Then take a bold step and just tell Deanie, I don't need to pray with anybody. I just need to talk to God. Go into the prayer room, talk to God. There is something powerful about going public with your prayers. You go in there and talk with the Lord and see what he can do. If you do want to talk with somebody, if you want to counsel with somebody, Deanie will make sure that that happens and we'll get you paired up. Why don't you stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, I know how important this idea is. I pray that that'll be embraced by others. That trust will become the foundation of intimacy and intimacy will set the stage for great adventures. Father, when that happens... I pray that people will see the significance of of having experienced it with you, that they might experience it with others. Lord, remind us often that those that we are connected with in intimate love relationships need to be Christians. That whole idea of unequally yoked comes into play. And then, Father, give us a forgiving heart and a merciful spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.